I'm John Banther, and this is Season 5 of Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley as we take a look at one of the most beloved concertos in the repertoire, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2. There is so much to get into. The rather tragic circumstances that led up to this composition, the one-of-a-kind melodies, and how he combines instruments to create different sounds. Plus, stay with us to the end to hear an example of Rachmaninoff himself at the piano. We so often see big symphonies and concertos dedicated to someone of stature, like a royal subject, kings, queens, wealthy patrons, and so on. But this concerto, which is one of the most, if not the most, beloved concerto by audiences in their repertoire, it's not dedicated to a king or a very wealthy aristocrat. Instead, it's dedicated to Rachmaninoff's therapist, one Dr. Dahl. And I I wish we saw more of this, Evan, and I think this is the first kind of instance of something like this that I see. It's a wonderful episode of gratitude between these two men. Rachmaninoff went through this really terrible experience as a young person. And uh, to get to this concerto, we have to mention, of course, his first symphony and how that ended up in this relationship with Dr. Dahl. The first symphony premiered in 1897, Rachmaninoff's in his 20s. And it was a disaster. Critics tore it apart. Alexander Glazunov was conducting. He may have been inebriated. While the, the performance was terrible, everyone hated this piece. And it was this terrible, painful humiliation for Rachmaninoff. Uh, he apparently even left the concert hall before the symphony was yes. even over. And the terrible criticism, uh, we're going to get into that, of course, later in the episode. And we'll probably do, well, we're definitely going to do, an entire episode eventually on that first symphony and all of those things. But as you're describing, Evan, what happened there was a terrible situation, which basically sent Rachmaninoff into what we would describe today as a probably severe depression. And we have some letters that he wrote during this time period, which we'll get into after looking at the first movement. And just to be clear, we're not looking to be armchair psychologists here either, you know, making diagnoses a century later, to be clear. But there's some things we can uh, draw from it and, and some things that I've read. And so this depression, as we'll call it, resulted in Rachmaninoff composing basically nothing for several years. He was able to perform still some and actually even conduct, but I read this was not even uh, without difficulty itself or even fulfillment. Right. And eventually his family was able to um, to get him help after this draws on. You know, 1897 is when that first symphony happened. It's getting closer to 1900. The family tries to get him help, and they do that with Dr. Nikolai Dahl, a family friend, I think. Basically, Rachmaninoff met with him daily for months for hypnosis and then what we would probably describe today as as therapy. Yeah. And after several months, his condition improves. He starts to write this concerto, and it is a an amazing comeback story. Yes, yes. And he starts with not the first movement, but the second and third movements, giving a performance of those in December of uh, 1900. And then he premiered the whole thing with the first movement he wrote later on in 1901, in November, with the Moscow Philharmonic Society. And he would go on to play this concerto over 140 times as the soloist in the coming decades. Yes, it's the polar opposite of his experience with the first symphony, just uh, which was panned and hated from the moment it came into existence. And this concerto loved and adored from the very start. 
and stay with us because we'll be playing an example of Rachmaninoff himself playing this concerto uh, later on. But just jumping into the, the first movement now, the concerto has quite an opening. We have these big, imposing chords. Yeah. Starts very soft, pianissimo, and it grows to a pretty towering fortissimo, grows very loud. Well, one thing is it's such a simple opening rhythmically. Everything is in half notes. That means there's a lot of liberty that can be taken here, right? Yes, and uh, as you, we and our, you and I have been discussing, John, this sense of possibility, different interpretations, and you listen to these different ingenious pianists who have played it over the years, including Rachmaninoff himself, and how they can take so much license with this really striking, it's a very Rachmaninoffian passage. It's just like no one but Sergei Rachmaninoff could have written this very simple yet very imposing jung bum chung and it just draws you in right away and it's so wonderful the ways in which different people can interpret it and possibly a kind of church bell influence as we've read some of those things coming into his music from his experience um, growing up around those um, uh, ringing church bells very russian mm. so Sometimes the opening is very soft. Sometimes it's very, very slow. Sometimes it's really fast. It's kind of a find-your-own-Goldilocks balance there. But right after this, the, the piano kind of whips around these arpeggios as the orchestra comes in with the first theme. And it's such a deep, dark sound. You almost can't even tell what's happening in the piano. It's like a turbulent river. What's also interesting is that this theme with strings, he adds clarinet. I almost can never really hear it, like distinctly trying to pick it out when you're um, listening to some recordings, but it's definitely adding something to the timbre. It adds a color to this dark string. The strings are playing low in their register, and the clarinet adds that extra layer of this warmth, and this is, it's almost a menacing sound. Mm. It's this very rich kind of brooding sound and yet it has this romantic sweep that like I was saying it just from the very beginning it just draws us in tell me more mm, tell me more that's what it feels like because Rachmaninoff he's such a storyteller it's like he's grabbing us by the hand and leading us through a forest maybe I saw um, uh, Beauty and the Beast recently the live action one so it's in my mind but you're running through that forest with Rachmaninoff yeah. on some adventure and this repeats before the um, cello section goes into the second part of this theme, getting higher and higher with more strings coming in later, upper strings that is, really, really adding to the tension. But one thing I really love in this concerto is that we get random moments of virtuosity, kind of like fireworks, I guess. Right, these, these sudden sparkles, uh, you know, these, especially contrasting with this, we were talking about these uh, slow half notes at the very beginning, and then all of a sudden you have these arpeggios that require such virtuosity. And uh, rather than seeming incongruous, it, it all fits together. But this is all just to set up one of the most beautiful moments that audiences love, and that is the second theme. This theme, it's so hard not to fall in love with it, Evan. It's sentimental and it's nostalgic, but it's not overly sweet. 
Yes, uh, one of the things I love about Rachmaninoff, he has this extraordinary gift for melody in which he's able to create these memorable, dare I say, tuneful phrases, and they're never cloying, they never seem sort of insincere or manufactured or, you know, there's an authenticity to what he's expressing. And we, we love to hear these tunes, which appeal uh, so broadly. The most sophisticated and experienced listener can enjoy them, and someone who has never heard Rachmaninoff before can enjoy them also. And a reason why this melody just grabs everyone, I think, is because the phrasing is also unexpected. Certain points are delayed by a beat, like that high point in the first um, ascending notes, sequence of notes that are sliding down. The phrasing is unexpected in that it's it's asymmetrical. It's not symmetrical. So many melodies, think of maybe Haydn's Surprise Symphony, that little melody in there, very symmetrical. You know, you've got a question and answer, an A and a B. Here that doesn't happen. Points are overlapping with different lines and instruments, which creates this forward motion. And this is part of what makes Rachmaninoff's music so exciting. Of course, I love Haydn, and we had a wonderful conversation, you and I, John, about Haydn last season. Marvelous in the way he was able to express these wonderful ideas through these very strict forms. And to me, it's kind of like the difference between a poem that's written in strict iambic pentameter versus uh, a free verse kind of thing, like an E.E. Cummings poem. And Rachmaninoff is very much more in the latter category. There's an almost conversational quality about his phrasing. And like you said, this asymmetrical quality that makes it sound almost improvisatory. There's a spontaneity to it that's just so exciting. I like how you describe it as conversation or conversational because this next moment is a good example of that, I think. The piano introduces a variation on this theme and then it's imitated by oboe, so not exactly. And we get this contrary motion. The piano is going up, the oboe is going down. Individual moments of tension and release in these lines are at slightly different times. This all just adds to the the forward motion that you don't get, uh, well, in some of the older music like Haydn that we um, that we talked about. And so far, it might sound like we're kind of in the opening chapters of a book. Rachmaninoff is painting a scene. We have these characters, these two themes. The story is moving along, and that is the exposition of this first movement in sonata form, which we'll kind of explore in three parts. So moving from exposition, it's time for some tensions, some soul-searching as we go into the development section. Or maybe like in a movie, we know the characters and their problems, now we watch it all unfold. And we get to some dark and broody sounds as we hear uh, the first theme come back in fragments and, and even twist it around. And that heartfelt second theme, I think, Evan, it becomes kind of recognizable when it appears in bits and bobs because of this, um, well, maybe, maybe that very familiar sounding um, opening line to it. And again, there's that conversational quality. We're continuing to describe this experience uh, using similar but not identical phrasing in a way that keeps it interesting and exciting. Now, we've already heard some things that are, well, pretty virtuosic sounding. And I think many audiences, many people mistakenly associate virtuosity with moving through many notes, really flying around the instrument. And well, that is true. 
But for me with the piano, it's the repeated notes on the same pitch that blow my mind every time. There's a great moment and a third moment we'll get to. And I'll try to put a video on the show notes page too, because it's almost like a circus act, how fast you have to push the same key with such a little space with your fingers um, all at once. It's, it's, um, that is quite a feat in my opinion. To make that sound like a clear, you can hear all the pitches and make it sound like a clear, compelling phrase. It really takes a, a, a brilliant pianist to do that well. And so we've got this development section where things are turbulent. Then we have this buildup coming back to the um, original theme, coming back in as we get into the final section of the movement, the recapitulation, the third part of the um, sonata form here. What I love is the theme comes in and then the piano is pounding out these chords, almost fighting the orchestra. It's almost like he's combining the first theme with the energy of the piano introduction at the same time. This moment is kind of short-lived before it comes back down. Again, he's very good with the pacing, but it's it's very evocative. Yeah, almost like an argument. You know, there's mm. this there's these different voices speaking at the same time, and they're both declaring something very passionately that's quite different, and yet it also it fits together perfectly. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I like that argument aspect to it because there are more sides to the music here. Yeah, that struggle. I mean, there's yeah. really a, the tension there is so thrilling. And without that, we can't get to some of the more sentimental sounds, which are really towards this point later in the movement, some of the softest points of the entire thing. And the horn that comes shining through with um, that beautiful second theme is just, oh, I, think it, I think it grabs everyone. And this goes back to something we mentioned at the beginning, that clarinet he includes with the, um, the strings and that opening theme, you really can't even hear it. He picks instruments for solo moments and like that very, 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 very carefully. And it results in moments like this. Then we slowly build back up in intensity rather quickly, actually, for the end of the first movement that has a very interesting ending. It's very unresolute. Obviously, the concerto is not over. And I think it will tie into something we'll explore a little bit later, too. Now, Evan, we can explore some letters that Rachmaninoff wrote in those years after that first symphony disastrous premiere and this concerto that I think paint kind of a picture of what he was experiencing. Right. You were saying earlier, John, that, uh, yeah, it's dangerous to try to diagnose, but, you know, we're calling it depression. I mean, whatever language we want to use, he's clearly suffering terribly. Mm -hmm. And these letters are a powerful and really painful testimony. Uh, here's this one letter. This is 1897. This is shortly after the symphony's disastrous premiere, and he writes in this one letter, In general, everything is going so badly, I'm afraid of falling ill by a seizure of black melancholy. Mm. Not language we'd use today, but how to extrapolate that to our own experience. He's so worried that his, his whole psyche is going to fall apart. He's so disillusioned and, and humiliated and despondent. Yeah, And then there's this other uh, letter uh, he writes. This is another quote from a letter. My things are still awry. I'm starting, it seems, to suffer from a black melancholy. That's a fact. This melancholy. Today I cried like an idiot. I have not yet begun to drink vodka or wine at all, but I'm almost ready to give you my honest word that if my affairs do not change, I will start to drink. I'm very drawn to this. Wow. 
I just, you know, this this uh, wrestling now with possibly alcoholism. I mean, this is just terrible anguish that this man, this young man, is 20s, he's in his 20s and really struggling with his identity. I think back to that time in my life and mm-hmm. I wasn't quite anything like this, but you really feel these things so deeply at that time of life. Yeah. He mentions black melancholy again, saying, I will die by the end of the season of black melancholy. Look and weep more. Come visit me at my grave. And then in another letter, he says to um, actually to um, Tchaikovsky's brother, Modest, since I visited you in Queen, two years passed. And during those two years, besides a single romance, I didn't write a single note. Apparently, I have completely lost the ability to compose and all my thoughts are directed toward regaining it. But then, Evan, in 1900, when he starts his therapy, we start to see a change in his writing. In one letter, he says, I am healthy, I live quietly and peacefully, and this is very boring. And this is this really grabbed me here when yeah, I read this. This is fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, this is like, I'm getting better, I'm not suffering anymore, and it's boring? <laughs> Just don't even know what to do with that. Like, was he addicted to his anguish, and now he's trying to figure out how to get clean from it? I don't know what this even means. It's really compelling. I think it's, um, I mean, just speaking from my own experience, when you have these problems, when you're experiencing it, when you start to get better, there's a moment where it's like all the remunerating thoughts and noise starts to come down. And then all of a sudden you kind of get bored. It's like, wait, now I I should go do something. Yeah. And then it's like this, it's this kind of turning point, I think, that um, you can experience when you're suffering with something like this. The stimulation of his anguish needs to be replaced by some other stimulation. And, of course, we have this concerto. And I think, you know, he channeled that boredom into this need to be creative again. And, uh, wow, what a result. And he wrote about it in a letter just after this. Although it may sound incredible, this cure really helped me. By the beginning of summer, I again began to compose. The material grew in bulk, and new musical ideas began to stir within me more than enough for my concerto. It's just, you love to see it. Yeah, I love to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll get into the second movement right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day, or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or through the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. Now, the first movement contains some beautiful melodies, and then we get to the second movement, which I guess contains even more beautiful melodies. This might be the most favorite slow movement, I think, Evan, among audiences for a concerto. Truly amazing. Uh, This is one of those Rachmaninoff slow movements that you just can almost can't believe it exists. And unlike the first movement opening, well, they both start pretty soft um, in dynamic, but a very different feeling here with this warm introduction with muted strings, meaning they have this little kind of hard rubber piece they put on the bridge of the instrument that just kind of dulls, mutes the sound a yeah, little bit. Yeah. And then the piano enters with some light arpeggiated uh, lines. It's, it's very, very atmospheric for a little bit. Then a beautiful pondering moment for the flute. And then this is, again, he's picking instruments like we've already said. You listen for how seamlessly he transitions the flute to the clarinet. You almost don't even notice. 
Yeah, and of course we think of Rachmaninoff as this wonderful composer for the piano. He certainly was, but of course his orchestration is also really remarkably skillful, and that really comes through, especially in this concerto. And then a little later, the flute returns to close out that line, and then the piano takes over the line while the clarinet plays the arpeggiated lines. It's almost like a a trio with everyone else just around watching. It's a really delicate balance and dance that I think just really, really works. Yeah, and I was saying earlier, the first movement, cut, there's this passage that sounds like an argument, and here it sounds more like a reconciliation. There's mm-hmm. this beautiful kind of synthesis of the you know, instruments and dialoguing back and forth in this very amicable kind of way. And that arpeggiated line in the clarinet, it seems to just go on forever without breath, and, and clarinet players can play with a long breath, but Rachmaninoff is using a very common composition technique We have two clarinets here, and they're alternating each bar, and the job of each player is to really focus and blend the last note that they have with the first note that the other player has. So virtuosity is required not just from the pianist in in performing this piece. Yes, and this is what what I'm talking about with uh, virtuosity. When you hear things, even just like this, that really gets me. Um, But of course, there's a lot of virtuosity in the piano part, and this movement too, in in a little bit. Yes. But first, this melody might sound familiar to you, even if you just like listening to uh, maybe Eric Carmen, uh, the singer who basically took this whole thing to create all by myself. Yes. You and I talked about Tchaikovsky last season and how some uh, popular songs are based on some of his symphonic melodies. And it's wonderful to see that Rachmaninoff is also a source of these kinds of inspirations. And in fact, when he, when Eric Carmen wrote that, I think he, he was under the assumption it was already kind of um, public domain, but it wasn't. And it wasn't really a big problem. I think it was pretty, you know, clear to Eric as well, paid the uh, Rachmaninoff estate. That's, uh, that's quite something. And in fact, we're going to put a video on the show notes page of the Anderson and Rowe piano duo doing a mashup of both of them. You really have to see it. So check that out afterwards. Great stuff. Yeah. We've mentioned color a bit. Rachmaninoff's um, color, which, you know, I love how he uses color in the orchestra. There's a moment which is really one of my favorites in the entire concerto, one of the richest chords you will hear. And it's all because of how he uses the orchestra. It's tuba and bass trombone in in a perfect fifth interval at the very bottom. It's just winds and brass. When you put tuba and bass trombone playing at a fifth, you get this rich, fat, huge sound. Yeah, the overtones, just this this huge panoply of overtones from those low instruments just resonating, in, and it just has that buzz that's it's like this grounding that's so powerful. Yes, and that's contrasted with, directly, Tchaikovsky, who a couple decades earlier would not write something like this, um, in my very correct opinion, we'll say right now, he would write this in octaves. Tuba and trumpet, bass trombone would be in octaves, not in fifths, which creates this whole sound, which, if you listen carefully, comes back, I think, at least two more times. Then after this rich chord where the piano shoots out like glitter from it, we get an extraordinary technical section in this slow movement and a cadenza um, as well. And I think this really adds to the second movement. It's not just something slow and reflective the whole time, but rather... It's tumultuous. Yeah. 
The cadenza is beautiful. And then we get the strings coming in with this extraordinary theme that's one of the most touching moments of the entire movement. And it's nice that it's Rachmaninoff getting out of the way with the piano playing triplets while the rest really yeah. make it beautiful. Yeah, it's the, the orchestra has the main voice there, and the piano is just sort of in the background, almost like a person soliloquizing, you know, mm. having a conversation with himself. Yeah. And then it ends rather gently with an E major chord in the piano, and then the third movement just gently comes in right after that with another soft but rather short E major chord growing from there. This is kind of a cute and light opening, but it leads to one of the most dramatic piano entrances, I think, ever for a concerto. Yeah, it's, it has a startling quality, especially after this, you know, slow movement has just brought us to this paradise of serenity and, and bliss. And then all of a sudden we have this sort of almost jagged quality shaking us out of our reverie. And I think this is a very Rachmaninoff quality that you see play out for the next couple of decades. We see it all here kind of unfolding in this concerto, how he uses instruments, how he uses percussion, for example. And here, it's like, it's the final movement. It's Rachmaninoff. We're strapped in for a wild ride. And I think he liked fast cars, too. He did like fast cars. And he did also, I think, in this concerto, find a voice mm -hmm. that, yes, you know, this music that he's writing in his 20s is not identical in style to the music he would write later on in life. And yet there are characteristics that he carries from this concerto through the rest of his composing career. And, you know, even onto the symphonic dances, you know, works that he composed at the very end of his life, you still find some of these same qualities. What a uh, vindication for Rachmaninoff after the disaster of the first symphony to find his voice and to thrill audiences with this voice and then explore those ideas for the rest of his life in such an ingenious way. And imagine coming back from that to premiere this concerto and you are the soloist and you're playing something. I mean, you're just listening to this. It sounds it sounds crazy how difficult it is at yeah, times. Yeah. And I mentioned before, for me, it's like repeated notes. There's a great example of that here. And I did tease before we would listen to a little bit of Rachmaninoff as well because he did make a recording of this. It was very, very rudimentary before the um, invention of tape. Not even all the instruments are being used because you couldn't record them. But here is Rachmaninoff playing the piano in this very difficult section. So I used to always wonder, Evan, could these composers actually even play their own concertos? And I think Rachmaninoff, uh, for him, the answer is yes. Yes, definitely. That piece, uh, that selection we just heard, 1923, with the Philadelphia Orchestra, Leopold Stokowski, and we also have these piano rolls that Rachmaninoff made, the American Piano Roll Company, or Ampico. Uh, and, you know, there's no doubt about Rachmaninoff's incredible skill as both a performer and a composer. 
and moving on with the music when the second theme is introduced. Again, it's not just by the whole string section or all winds or something, but something interesting. It's violas and oboe with horns providing some really beautiful um, accompaniment. We get the piano alone again, but paired with what instrument? Not clarinet or, or horn or oboe maybe here, but rather a bassoon, which I think I've not quite heard like this in this concerto yet until the third movement. And there is a lot of this with the orchestra um, being there when it needs to be and really staying out of the way and vice versa with um, Rachmaninoff at the piano. This is one moment, Evan, that depends on the recording that I think speaks to, you know, what Rachmaninoff would do for, for decades later, and that's his use of cymbals. And, I mean, how many piano concertos have cymbals in them? Not that many. Right. How many have tuba? Very few. Yes. So he's got a lot of instruments, a lot of color in his pocket to play with. And this, the way he uses cymbals here, you hear it all throughout his music. And, um, yeah, I think it's just fun. Uh, it's fun to recognize these little things. There's this daring quality to the orchestration, like you were saying, John, using tuba and cymbals, instruments we don't often see in a piano concerto. And Rachmaninoff is able to use, he doesn't, he's not profligate in his use of them. He's not like, hey, here's a symbol. And it's just this big thing that keeps getting in your face. Uh, he uses it just as an added spice in just the right quantity at just the right time. And he's being inventive and a bit bold in those orchestral colorings in a way that's just, it's just right. And another example of a very Rachmaninoff quality, I hear these like little fugue moments in his music. Yes. And especially here, you feel like this could really come out of something you know, inspired by Bach. And that just adds to the twisting, twirling forward uh, momentum here, blistering fast. That's one of the things I love about Rachmaninoff, too. I think of the fugue in general as a very intellectual musical construct, and he's able to use it in a way that doesn't have this dry, bookish sort of academic quality. It just becomes this very exciting, uh, it's almost like this chase with these different voices coming in and fugal responsiveness that, uh, you know, it's it's never dry or stuffy. It's And like you said, it's there's a Bach-like quality, there's a Baroque-like quality to it that is also simultaneously very modern. Maybe this will be the last example I give of something we find in a lot of his music, and that is um, lines for the trumpet that really pop out like little counter melodies, counter motifs to what's happening in the front, um, especially in symphonic dances, which was really one of the last things he composed decades later. Right. It's just fun to connect these, you know, beginning and end, um, and end kind of things. That finding his voice and just sticking with those kinds of ideas through his whole career is a very admirable quality in Rachmaninoff's music. What makes great composers? Finding their voice, like you just said, and then sticking with it. It's like um, some artists will paint the same thing thousands of times yes. to, to really figure out... You know, every little variable you can do. I just want to say very briefly that there's a similarity to me between Rachmaninoff and Verdi in this respect. Verdi had an early catastrophe in his career with the opera, his second opera, Un Giorno di Regno, and he was like, I'm going to give up composing. He was so depressed, and his, his 
wife and children died at that same time. And if he was he was he was encouraged to continue, and he wrote Nabucco, and it was a huge hit. And he found his voice, and for the rest of his career, he was able to express himself. And of course, it's not monolithic by any means, but there's this sense of continuity through his career, this genius that keeps growing, building on these fundamental principles. And you really see that with Rachmaninoff, and you certainly see it, I think, more than any other piece by Rachmaninoff with this concerto, that finding the voice, that sticking to a set of principles, almost like they're moral principles, and continuing to elucidate with that voice through the course of a brilliant composing career. Mm, I love that. I mean, it's also just, it's the story of just keep going. Just keep going. The first symphony was a setback that did not stop him. No. Kind of like a broken record, a lot of nostalgic moments here when the strings come back in with uh, that beautifully nostalgic uh, second theme here. Again, why does it feel this way? Maybe it's all these sequences, um, like the same interval, repeated um, at different places. Um, Lots of tension and release, but each resolution seems to be the start of the very next line. So it's this um, constant uh, dovetailing. And then we get to a point in the music, which I think you hear it in in most music, but especially Rachmaninoff. You can tell this now. It's the beginning of the end. Symbols come back in so lightly with little punctuated uh, bits here as the piano starts to turn and twist and get higher and higher. You know, this is it's like it being at the, the last whatever hill on a roller coaster. I don't like those, but I imagine it's something. There's really a sense of completion here. We're at the beginning, like you said, the beginning of the end. And again, we were talking about the symbols and these unusual orchestral features that are used in just the right quantity. He speeds back up for the final push, but he's still, Rachmaninoff is still taking us down slightly unexpected paths. That Maybe that asymmetric idea. It's a little bit unexpected. Uh, when the piano comes back in, it builds up and then it comes back down and then bringing it back up. We get this moment for the piano alone. It feels like you're just kind of suspended. And then when the orchestra returns, words almost fail to describe this. That's so rich and decadent. There's a kind of an almost utilitarian quality to Rachmaninoff's virtuosity. I contrast him with a composer like Pablo de Sarasate, for example, the Carmen Fantasy, very famous piece, violin and orchestra. The violin part is very flamboyant and, and it's wonderful music, but there's a kind of sense like it's just, let's show off what this amazing instrument can do. And with the great violinist, it's very exciting. Rachmaninoff's virtuosity is not showy for the sake of showiness. Mm-hmm. It's a, There's a purpose to it. There's a larger purpose where, yes, we're very impressed by what we're hearing. It's very exciting. Wow, I can't believe that human being can make those sounds with these incredibly difficult gestures. But there's a purpose to it. There's a broader meaning to it than just, wow, this is an impressive feat. It's a, it's a, it's a story about human existence. I mean, it's pretentious to say, but there's a, there's a truth that's being stated there aside from just the exciting fireworks. Then he brings it all home. He brings it all full circle with this moment, bringing back a moment from the first movement. Remember that gorgeous melody, that second theme when the piano re-enters there. You can find that here too. And the end of the concerto, Evan, is so exciting. And I like how the end, it's rhythmically very similar to the first movement, but more resolute, as if that was the question, and then this is the answer. 
This is the answer. I meant what I said before, and let me restate it just to be absolutely sure that we all understand the truth of what I have stated. And there's a cyclical quality. Mm -hmm. You know, we, let's finish where we started with a decisiveness that's just, uh, there's a sense of affirmation that is just so compelling. I can only imagine, just imagine what Rachmaninoff could have been feeling. Dun, da, da, dum. I mean, words can possibly not describe it, but it must have been just utter relief. Relief and vindication. Yeah. This is an incredible comeback story for Rachmaninoff, one that maybe shouldn't have come from a situation at all. We'll get into that in the episode on that first symphony. This seemed like it reinvigorated his career and his entire life. And in fact, you can learn all about his life on our episode number 50. Now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. What do we have, Evan? We got a wonderful five-star review from Azalea on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Azalea. Uh, listening to part one of our episode, What is a Symphony? And she wrote, Hi, thank you for your wonderful podcast. I enjoy listening to this program so much. May I ask, what's the music clip you played in the show on September 24, 2019? The music showed up around five minutes and two seconds. I would like to know the title of the music. Thank you, and nice selection. Well, thank you so much for the five stars, Azili. And I'm sorry we did not get to this before the summer break. So going back to 2019, that's the before times. The moment you're talking about is the slow movement from the Sinfonia that opens Vivaldi's opera, Farnace, which is F-A-R-N-A-C-E. So hopefully you get this message, uh, Azalea. But anyone, if you ever have a question on the music like this, you can always send us an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org, and then we'll be able to get back to you directly. Well, thank you so much, Evan, for joining me for all things Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. Thank you, John. It's a wonderful, inspiring story, not only of great music, but of a young man who didn't give up on himself and his family and friends didn't give up on him and we are all the richer for it. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.